So if you could rewrite the past 12 months, where would you even begin? It's fair, I mean, just from the last Easter until this one, it's fair to say that there, there's been enough craziness, enough hardship, confusion and division and everything else, that we could fill up an entire history book all by itself with just one year. It's like maybe one day in the library there'll be a special section just for 2020 behind lock and key. I mean, enter at your own risk if you want to know about what it was really like. My guess is, if you're anything like me, if you could go back and rewrite even just the last year, the, the page would be covered in red ink, both personally and globally. There's so much that we perhaps would change if we could. Well, in that case, I'm really glad that we're all here together this morning, Easter Sunday. Because of all the days on the calendar, Easter is our clearest and our boldest declaration of hope. And in fact, I, I want us to see today through the scripture that in a very real sense, God did rewrite history on that first Easter Sunday. Because what we declare this day, the day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is that we have a hope here in this world, not merely somewhere beyond it. Sometimes I think the impression of the Christian faith is, well, life is hard, but if you can grit your teeth and make it through, then one day we'll get to heaven and everything will be fine then. But the, the point of Easter, the hope of Easter, is greater than that. Yes, there's a hope laid up for us, there's an inheritance reserved for us by faith in Christ, of course. But y'all, the, the blessing of Easter is that in real time and space, a man really rose from the grave and declared victory over sin and death. That means that our hope, if we trust in Christ, our hope is alive and well, and it's here, and it's now. The, the blessing and grace of Easter is meant to saturate everything about us, every moment of our lives, both the good and the bad, the stuff that we want to keep as good memories and the stuff we'd rather rewrite, all of it is covered under the grace of resurrection because it's a real hope built upon the power of a real God who really loves us. And so we're going to drop in on Luke chapter 24 today. There's a lot of different places we could turn to discuss the resurrection. If you come to harvest over the years, I guess long enough, we'll probably touch them all. But for today, we're in Luke 24, a, a strangely ordinary account, at least at the beginning, of two men walking along the road. It's called the Emmaus Road story. And I mentioned it's a peculiar story. We'll see why. But before we enter into the text, this is true, not just in Luke here, but in all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four that tell us the story, we find out something about the disciples that, frankly, would come as a surprise to us. For all of the disciples on that first Easter morning, as the sun rose on the first Easter, the disciples were not joyfully preparing for a resurrection. They were not all standing at the tomb with one of those Costco sheet cakes, you know, welcome back, Jesus, streamers and balloons. That's what we would expect. He told them he'd come back. He told them when but they weren't there because all of the disciples, even those closest to him, even Jesus' own mother, they were utterly defeated on that first Easter morning. They were fearful, lost, and despairing 
because none of them expected what was to come. See, as far as the disciples were concerned, Jesus had failed. How could the true Messiah, how could the true anointed one of God have been crucified and put in the tomb? And so for them, all of their hopes had been dashed and destroyed. That's how the first Easter began. And so if ever there was a group of people who could wish to rewrite history, if somehow they could rearrange the events that had occurred that weekend and undo the, un, the unjust trial and conviction and crucifixion of Christ, it would have been them. If they could have rewritten history, they absolutely would. They did not understand what was going on. And that's what we drop in on today as the unthinkable happens. Luke chapter 24, what Randy read for us, verses 1 through 12, is the setup to get us to the next story. And I'm going to read the whole thing. This is like 23 verses. But it's absolutely wonderful and necessary, and it reads very quickly. Look at how this story unfolds. Luke 24, verse 13. Behold, two of them, the disciples, were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are, you, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And he said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene who was a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early this morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. And so Jesus went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking 
of the bread. A lot going on in that story. I want to point us to two major points for today. They both begin with T. I want us to see today that Easter is true. And then secondly, we're going to see how the truth of Easter transforms us. Truth and transformation. Y'all, it should go without saying, I know that as a church, we believe that Easter is true. We wouldn't be here if we didn't. But I don't want us to take the truth of Easter for granted. Perhaps you've been part of a great many Easter services over the years like I have. We shouldn't take for granted, though, how radical and wonderful this all is and how significant the resurrection is to everything else. It's the linchpin of everything. Uh, The Apostle Paul framed it like this. He actually doubles down when he talks about the resurrection to the, the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says, if Christ is not raised, then our faith is worthless. And we are still in our sins. And we are, of all the people of the world, the most to be pitied. That's how important resurrection was in Paul's mind. That it can't simply be for us a nice spiritual story, but something that really happened, or else the Christian faith unravels altogether. Now, Luke, in this account, gives us some wonderful clues to the truthfulness of Easter but they come across in a peculiar way. Luke doesn't write this the way that we would write it or the way that we would expect it to be. And so I just want to show us, I want to walk through some key points of this story to show us how Luke presents Easter to us and why we should believe it. So go back with me in your scripture. Go back with me to Luke uh, chapter 24, verse 13, the very beginning of the story. We get the setup here as to what's happening. Two disciples, one named Cleopas, the other is unnamed. They are leaving Jerusalem on Sunday morning, or Sunday afternoon perhaps. They're leaving to go home to Emmaus. And we see that they're traveling under a heavy weight of sadness. These men had followed Jesus for a time. We don't know for how long. We do know that they were in Jerusalem with Jesus the final week of his life, and that they were there on the day that he was crucified. And so for these men, why are they now leaving Jerusalem to go back home? It's because the show was over. And we need to understand their mindset here. Jesus was dead. He's been buried. And so they have packed up, and now they're going home. Maybe they're going to find a way to pick up the pieces of their lives and figure out how to move on and make something of themselves. But everything that they had pinned their hopes on at this point had completely fallen apart. They're going home under a heavy cloud of distress and disillusionment. Then the risen Son of God comes up alongside them on the road and begins a conversation. What you guys talking about? There's really a lot of humor in this story. These men, as they encounter Jesus, of course, Luke doesn't tell us why, but God prevents them for a time from seeing who he is. They don't know that it's Jesus at first. And so they just think this guy's a stranger. Are you the only one? around Jerusalem in these days who doesn't have a clue what's going on? See, interestingly enough, Jesus is the only one who's actually in the know. They're the ones who are clueless. But he allows this conversation to, to continue. And Luke tells us, as Jesus approaches and interacts with them, they stand still looking sad. They stop what they're doing, eyes to the ground, perhaps tears in their eyes, 
as they begin to relate to this stranger their sad story. And we see that in verse 19. They tell him what's wrong. Jesus the Nazarene was a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. And the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. You know, it's amazing that Jesus' own disciples could have been so ignorant of his identity and his purpose. Isn't this, this is fascinating to me. And it's not unique to these two guys, as if these were, you know, well, these weren't the important ones. Peter, James, and John, Mary Magdalene, they knew what was going on. No. Nobody at this stage, at the dawning of the first Easter, understood at the ground level what was most important about Jesus. You see it. They refer to him as a great prophet, but they don't yet recognize him as the Son of God. Not really. And therefore, when Jesus was crucified, all of the disciples came to the same conclusion. Failure. He's been defeated. Whatever we hoped he was, even if we were absolutely sure of it, clearly he's not. And we see that. I mean, I, I don't know how they could have come to any other conclusion. We hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel. But now the show's over. All We had put all our eggs in his basket, but we watched him die. With tears in our eyes, we watched him nailed to a cross. And so it shouldn't surprise us at this point that these men, unaware of the true uh, divine nature of Jesus, unaware of why he went to the cross in the first place, they're completely dispirited. With heads hung low, they're walking home, trying to make sense of it all, but unable to do it. Jesus' own disciples had not yet understood who he was or why he died. Now that's strange, but the story really gets even more peculiar if you look in verse 22. As Cleopas goes on to explain what's happened, he says, now fast forward to Sunday, some women among us also amazed us when they were at the tomb early this morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Now, y'all, all four Gospels tell us this story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, every single one, women are the first and the key eyewitnesses at the empty tomb. Women are the first ones to witness Jesus' resurrection, to see him alive. Now, that's not strange to us, but it was strange back then. And this is going to be hard for us to hear, but it's important to understand the history, that every ancient culture, including this one, held women in very low esteem. Every ancient culture was the same, that women were considered second-class citizens. In many cultures, women were treated as property. I know we don't like to hear that. I know that's wrong, but that's the nature of reality. That's how life operated. In fact, women were not even allowed to give testimony in the court of law. Their, court, their testimony was considered inadmissible because women were considered unreliable. There was a man named Celsus back in the first century. He was an enemy of Christianity. He wrote a book trying to explain why Christianity couldn't possibly be true. And this was one of his main lines of argument. Quote, how can we accept the testimony of hysterical females? That's how the world operated back then. 
Interestingly enough, if you were listening when Randy read from verses 1 through 12, that's how the disciples felt. The women returned from the empty tomb. They'd seen an angel. They're beside themselves with confusion and with joy, but their words appeared to the disciples as nonsense, and they would not believe them. Now, how does all of this point to the truthfulness of Easter? We have Jesus' closest friends, ignorant of his true identity, unaware of his purpose in going to the cross, completely deflated by the reality of his death and burial, not in any way expecting a resurrection. And when he does rise, the key witnesses are women. Y'all, this story should have never gotten off the ground. Everything about it in its details, in a sense, works against the, the credibility and believability of this story. And so, y'all, here's, this is a, it's a peculiar way to see things, but consider that over the centuries there have been a great many myths and legends that have been written. If Luke were trying to add to that list, if Luke were simply sitting down to write a legend in hopes of creating a new religion, he would not have written it like this. He would not have written it in such a way that no one in their right mind would believe it. The disciples are foolish and ignorant. The women are the primary eyewitnesses. Who would believe such a thing in that culture? Y'all, almost every scholar, both Christian and non-Christian, agrees on this point. That the story is written that way because that's how it actually happened. It was not written in a way that would make us want to believe it, but it was recorded as history because that's the way it happened. Y'all, something truly earth-shattering occurred that first Easter Sunday. And it is not for us a nice spiritual story. It is not for us a sentimental feeling. It's a real-life miracle. And because Easter is true, it's not a bare fact of reality for us to admire. Because Easter is true, it's something that's meant to come home to our hearts and bring us transformation. Easter is both true and transforming, and we actually get to see the beginnings of the transformation right here in this account. If you look with me at verse 25, how does Jesus respond to the ignorance and the sadness and the disillusionment of these two men? He does not put his arms around them and say, guys, it's all going to be all right. Just trust, trust me here. Okay? You'll see in a minute. He actually rebukes these men. Look at verse 25. He said to them, oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now, y'all, Jesus is not calling them stupid. He says they are slow of heart to believe. He's challenging their faith as to how these men who walked with him, who listened to him, who heard him from his own mouth predict his own suffering and death and burial and resurrection. He told them it would come, yet they were slow of heart to believe. And Jesus does not mince words. He wants them to feel the weight of this new reality. Now, what's Jesus going to do? He rebukes them and he walks away now to find some other disciples who are more receptive, who are more intelligent. No, he takes them through the whole Bible. These two men 
Jesus walks them, beginning with Moses and the prophets. He explains to them all of the scripture concerning himself. As to the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, did not come to conquer armies, to uh, deliver Israel from the Roman oppressors and set them free in time and space. No, but the Messiah came to actually suffer himself and die on a cross. That's what they had missed, and so that's what he wanted to show them, that that had always been the plan of God and that they had missed it. This is what Jesus is doing now with these two men. He's not simply giving them information. He's spending the time required to bring it home to their hearts because he wants them to be changed. Y'all, consider how long this conversation must have taken. Luke tells us that it's seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Maybe you're, an, maybe you're a power walker. But if you're a normal person like me and you don't walk very fast, that's seven miles, that's about two and a half hours. And then we see that he sat down and had a meal with them. So at bare minimum, we can assume that Jesus spent at least three hours with these two men. He didn't just drop in to give the information. He gave them his time himself. Now, we should ask ourselves this question, knowing that this is the first day, he's just been raised, it's Easter Sunday, is this the best use of his time? I mean, if Jesus were a better marketer, he would have thought to himself, I need to find a hillside, I need to find a mountaintop somewhere and gather a great throng of people, maybe 10,000 in number, and declare to them that all of the evil perpetrated against me did not achieve its intended purpose, I have been raised again to new life, here I am. I mean, again, if I were writing the story, that's how I would have crafted it. That makes the most sense. But, you know, Jesus was never much of a marketer. From the very first day, we celebrate at Christmas time the fact that Jesus was laid in a manger in a no-name town, and the first eyewitnesses of his birth were a bunch of shepherds. God gave, gave no credence to our way of doing things. There was no palace. There was no great crowd. There was no parade. It happened in the middle of nowhere, just like it does here. Two men on a road in the middle of nowhere talking to a stranger, not realizing that Christ is next to them. He spends the time with them. That's impressive, isn't it? But it's even more impressive when we think about who these men actually are, or at least maybe it's better to say who they aren't. I, I mentioned this earlier. These are not the important ones. Peter, James, John, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus, there are a lot of people who would have gotten first crack at the resurrection, right, if Jesus were doing it our way. But he comes upon these two men. One is named Cleopas. He never shows up again in the Bible, not once. The other one doesn't even have a name. And how would you like to feel if you were that guy? Years later, the Gospel of Luke comes out. He goes to Barnes & Noble, buys a copy, flips through, thinking, oh, man, here's my great moment. He gets to Luke 24. You've got to be kidding me. That was me, Billy. Come on. This guy doesn't even get a credit. Jesus spends hours slowly, patiently, faithfully, lovingly blessing these men with his presence the day he was raised. See, information wouldn't, wouldn't have done it for them. They had the information, but they didn't have eyes to see it yet. 
And see, this is true for you and me also. If Easter is true, and my hope is that you believe, yes, it is true, the bare fact of that reality will not change your heart. We need to be changed. We need to be transformed by the truth. It needs to come home to us. And that is God's intention. Information was not Jesus' primary motivation in this walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus. He wanted to show him, them who he was. He wanted to give them transformation. And here in this story, Jesus does exactly that. He walks with them and he talks with them with patience and with care. Y'all, these are two men that otherwise we'd have never heard of. They are right now, at best, just footnotes in history. We don't know anything else about them. But they are recorded forevermore now because Jesus took the time to bring his transforming grace into their lives. And y'all, this is if, if Easter is true, if God has raised his son from the dead, that's an unimaginable work of power. And we should admire God for his power, yes. But he didn't just do it to show off. The same thing these men needed, you and I in our hearts need, of utmost importance, we need to know that when Jesus came back from the dead, he did it in a very real sense for us. Not for himself as a display of raw power, but for you and me, so that seeing him alive, we might experience life ourselves. So that turning to him in trust, believing from the heart that he is who he said, and that the resurrection is proof that you and I get more now than just religion. We get more now than just sentimental feelings or an occasional Sunday pick-me-up. What we get is God himself. When Jesus left the tomb, he came to us and revealed his purpose that we might know him and have fellowship with him forever. Y'all, to be a Christian means that we are united with Christ. We don't just believe in him in the abstract, but we come to know him from the heart. And y'all, there's something wonderful about this that, uh, that the resurrection is meant to point us to. The Apostle Paul uh, gives us this, this sense of a mystery in, in Romans chapter 6. He talks about the death of Christ and his resurrection and where we find ourselves in that story. Not just what Jesus did, but what is now true of us because of it. And so Paul says, because Jesus has died, by faith in him, we also die. We die to sin. We die to what we once were. We die to the old self, and we become something new. And here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Here's the new thing and how it comes. He says, as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. This is not a new lease on life, that Jesus has done something great, and in our admiration of him, we get an extra boost of motivation to live right, to live better. No, it's not a new lease on life. It's a new life. It's a new thing entirely, because he has been raised, and we are united with him. We experience resurrection life, too. One day yet future, yes, but also right here and right now. See, because Jesus is alive, we may be transformed by his grace to live a new life here and now. 
Y'all, Easter is not just practically true. It's personally transforming. And I want to appeal to y'all as we consider this story today, that just like these two men, Cleopas and some dude, you and I, it makes no difference at all who you are or where you've been or what you've done or what's been done to you. Anything that you think that would discredit you and disqualify you from being allowed into the presence of God, none of those things are held any longer to our account. None of those things are considered barriers that would separate us and alienate us from God, not one minute longer, because Jesus Christ has been raised. Even men like this, who otherwise are just footnotes in history, may be transformed by his grace. And y'all, that gives such hope to you and me. It is humbling to consider this, that in a hundred years, it's entirely possible that in a hundred years, there will not be a human being walking on this earth who even knows that I was here, who remembers me at all. And the same goes for you. We don't like to think about that. I like to think that I'm more significant than that. But that's the truth. Name your great-great-grandparents if you don't believe me. Just tell me their names. But Jesus knows you. Jesus knows the number of hairs on your head. Jesus cares enough for you that he would determine to take on flesh himself and to become the lowest of all people, to serve us to the point of death on a cross. You are not a footnote in his book if you believe in him. He has come for you to display his love. You can now know him and be united with him forever. That's what Easter means. Isn't that amazing? Now, how does this happen for us? How do we actually achieve this wonderful new reality? Well, again, the story gives us the clues that I want to point us to as we close. There are two things I pray for uh, for myself this Easter, and I pray for us as we consider this great account. And they are, one, a burning heart, and then, two, open eyes. Isn't that what we see in the story? For these two men, they say it. Were not our hearts burning within us while, we were, while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scripture to us? A burning heart. For these two men, their hearts were set on fire as they came to realize the true purpose of Jesus' death. What they assumed was a failure, Jesus opens reality to them. He says, no, this is necessary. This is not failure, but victory. That Jesus Christ came to save the lost, not by rescuing us from the Romans, not by taking us out of the problems of this world. No, but he saves us by suffering himself on the cross. That's how he came to deliver, which means for us that we are not just rescued from bad circumstances. We are not rescued from bad people outside of us. We're rescued from the greatest enemy of all, that is sin and death. Jesus had to come and save me from me, not from something else, ultimately. And that's what they had to see, and that's what we need to see. That's what sets the heart on fire when we recognize the fact that all the righteous judgment that our sins deserve, Jesus took upon himself. 
And in a very real and mysterious way, the scripture says Jesus became our sin. And because he became our sin, through his death, our sin is now forgiven. It's removed. As far as the east is from the west, the psalm tells us, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. Our sin can no longer stain us. It can't touch us because our sin was taken from us by someone in our place. And y'all, in this way, Jesus' death was no defeat. It was God's greatest victory. And it's ours as well. Everything that would keep us separated from him, all that would threaten to alienate us from God has been removed. And now the way has been made. Jesus Christ, through his death, brings us to God that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Y'all, I hope that sets your heart on fire today. And I hope if if it's the 3,000th time you've heard that good news, I hope it never becomes numb and dull, but that the flame is reignited each time. The fact that I'm a sinner, and if I know my own heart, I hope you know your own heart. I know just how lost I was and how needy I still am. And that Jesus Christ, knowing every sin, willingly laid himself down. That should set me on fire in the best way. Knowing that God would love us enough that while we were yet sinners, while we were still his enemies because of our rebellion, that he would send his son for us. That's the extent of his love. That's the heaviness of his grace and mercy and it's now ours as a free gift. Let that set your heart aflame. I pray that it will. And then secondly, we see it, I pray for open eyes. And y'all, this is the miraculous work of God, that God removes our blindness and he shows us the light of his glory and his grace. Their eyes were opened to see him for who he is. He's alive. And I hope that through the open eyes of faith, you and I would see this today, that our salvation has nothing at all to do with our work, with our good intentions, with our religious achievements, with our promises to do better. None of that registers with God. It does us no good. We don't need it. In fact, the more we try to add to the equation, potentially the further away we get. We become trusters in ourselves and not in the one who came to save us. And so we drop all of that today and with eyes open to see Jesus Christ for who he really is, I pray we would recognize this. He said on the cross, it is finished. You and I add nothing. We receive his grace as a gift through the open eyes of faith. Y'all, you you and I, I know this about you, that there are things we wish we could rewrite Both personally, you have griefs in your life that if you could go back and undo them, you would. And and collectively, globally, there are things about the last year, the last month, that if we could take a red pen to that, we'd change it if it were in our power to do it. I know that. But I want to encourage us that at Easter, what was true the first Easter is still true today and it will be true forevermore. 
in a very real way, God has done just that. God has rewritten history. Everything we assumed to be true has come untrue in the end. What appeared to be God's greatest failure was in fact his greatest victory. And the disciples came to see it for themselves. I hope we do too. Where we were once hopeless and without God in the world, we now have an unshakable, eternal hope by faith in Christ. What was once true of us is no longer true. Where sin and death once abounded and held us captive. Now grace has abounded all the more. Because on Easter Sunday, both then and now, we can proclaim that our Savior really did rise again. And by faith in him, his life may be imparted to us. Now we may have life in his name. Nothing is ever the same. Let's pray. Father, would you grant us this morning open eyes and a burning heart that we might see maybe for the first time just how wonderful your love for us is. A love that we don't have to speculate about, but that you have demonstrated for us that you gave your son over to death and you raised him again. Father, would you, would you give us this morning clear, bright, and glad eyes to see that we may confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead and be saved. And Father, I pray this morning, even, even for us who, who have grown accustomed to this good news, that you would, you would light our hearts on fire with just how awesome your power is. There is no thing in creation that can hold you captive. There is nothing at all that we can do or that Satan himself could do that could bind your hands and prevent your purposes from being fulfilled. Not even death itself could hold the Son of God. Father, I pray that our hearts would be set aflame by the awesomeness of Easter. Lord, as we consider today the simplicity of this message, thank you, Lord, that you have not set up hoops for us to jump through, that you did not hand us a second book of the law that we might earn our way by trying harder, that you did not send your son Jesus merely to teach us the way and then leave it in our hands, but that he came to seek and to save that which is lost. And therefore, our hope 
this gift today may be filled to the brim. I pray that we would see and savor the wonder of the empty tomb. Thank you, Jesus. It's in his name we say, Amen.